Gerontological Society of America, Meaningful Lives as We Age. Welcome to Science and Storytelling, a GSA 75th anniversary podcast on aging. I am Danielle A. Waldron, Assistant Professor at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts. And I'm Joanna Chase, Associate Professor at the University of Missouri Sinclair School of Nursing in Columbia, Missouri. Today we are interviewing Len Fishman. Len Fishman was the director of the Gerontology Institute at UMass Boston until his recent retirement in the fall of 2021. The Institute is the research policy and public service component of the gerontology program at UMass Boston. Before that, Len was CEO of Hebrew Senior Life, New England's largest nonprofit provider of senior housing and healthcare, an affiliate of Harvard Medical School. He led the transformation of this 117-year-old nonprofit from an organization focused on institutional long-term care to an integrated system of housing, healthcare, research, and teaching. Today, HSL serves seniors of all faiths and income, increasingly in community-based settings and at nine locations in the greater Boston area. Before coming to Boston, Len was president of Leading Age in Washington, D.C., which represents 6,000 nonprofit organizations providing aging services to over 2 million older adults. He served in the cabinet of New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman as commissioner of the Department of Health and Senior Services. For a decade before that, he practiced healthcare in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So welcome, Len. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. I'm going to start us off by talking a little bit about the state of science in gerontology and your perspectives about some pivotal moments. So could you tell us a pivotal moment that advanced science in gerontology that all listeners should learn about? Well, my orientation has always been to policy and applied research. And one experience that stands out in my mind is the movement that began in the United States in the late 1980s and early 1990s to introduce something that was not known at the time called assisted living. And it was imported from Northern Europe, where it had been around for a long time. And it was it was first introduced in a big way in the state of Oregon, which has always been a leader in long-term services and supports. And there was a woman named Karen Brown Wilson, who was one of the early assisted living providers. And to her credit, Karen was trying to develop a model that would be affordable. And she worked in concert with Dick Ladd, who was the head of the Medicaid agency in the state of Oregon. And there were a lot of people who were skeptical about assisted living, especially those who were involved with the nursing home industry. At the time, I was a lawyer and representing the New Jersey affiliate of Leading Age. And like a lot of people, I was somewhat skeptical of the assisted living model. In Oregon, the state did something remarkable. It decided that not only was it going to allow assisted living, but that it was going to make it a Medicaid-covered service. And in order to launch the, the industry in Oregon, the Medicaid director, Dick Ladd, agreed to pay assisted living facilities a rate that was 80% of the amount that nursing homes were receiving. 
which was a very high number. And Dick did it in order to really prime the pump in Oregon for a a launch that would make assisted living become a known and accepted service. There were a lot of fights about things like, can people living in assisted living have stoves? For Karen Brown Wilson, that was very important. A lot of people said, well, you're, you're going to be serving people who are maybe frail and, and not cognitively intact. Won't that be dangerous? Karen also insisted that people be able to lock their doors. Believe it or not, that was a big issue. A lot of people were opposed to that on the theory that what happens if you know a person locks herself in and we can't get to her. So there were a lot of fights over autonomy. And for Karen and other assisted living people, the whole idea here was to move away from a nursing home model where residents are largely disempowered to one where frail elders had much more control over their lives. Karen was persuasive and she won. Dick Ladd did something remarkable to help the industry launch. And as one might expect, there was a tremendous backlash on the part of nursing homes. They said essentially that these are places where old people will come and be neglected. There won't be enough staff. These are essentially, this is nursing home light. They won't be appropriately regulated and so on. So there was a lot of back and forth and the nursing home lobby had some power in Oregon and other states and were able to get the ears of legislators and others and generate concerns about whether assisted living was indeed safe and efficacious. And this is, now remember, this is at a time when People in this country hadn't heard of assisted living, so it was easy to promote ideas that this was potentially dangerous. The folks in Oregon, and I'm not sure exactly how this happened, had the insight that the best way to attack this problem was to invite in a nationally respected researcher, and they reached out to Rosalie Kane at the University of Minnesota. Rosalie became, in later years, a friend as well as a colleague. I didn't know her at the time. She was called in to do an assessment of the kinds of people that were being served in assisted living in Oregon, to look at the quality of care, and also to ask residents what their thoughts were about the kind of uh, care they were receiving. She also looked at adult foster care, which was um, another program in Oregon that served Medicaid beneficiaries. And it was essentially a program where individuals were certified to bring people into their homes to provide LTSS services. And one of the things that was distinctive about Oregon is that they had a deliberate nursing home substitute model for assisted living. They wanted people who were eligible for Medicaid nursing home services to be served in assisted living as a way that would provide a a better quality of life and would be more cost-effective, frankly, for Medicaid. And the result of Rosalie's research, now I'm doing this on memory, to be honest, uh, and it's been many years, but 
the thrust of her findings, the upshot was that there was a very high level of satisfaction that residents of assisted living expressed. The same was true, by the way, about Medicaid beneficiaries living in adult foster care. Also, that the quality of care was sound and that the objections that had been raised to assisted living were largely erroneous. This is an example of a highly respected researcher doing applied research and making a huge difference because without Rosalie's intervention, there would have been a, 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 a they said, they said uh, fight that went on for a very long time. By contrast, Rosalie's intervention really settled in the minds of policymakers the question whether assisted living could be safe. It didn't mean that assisted living providers uh, had free reign. I, people recognized that you needed a regulatory framework, some kind of monitoring, etc. But that the basic concept, it was a proof of concept, was very sound. And assisted living really changed the face of long-term services and supports forever. Going from no assisted living facilities in the country in the late 70s, early 80s, to almost a million units in the United States today, not that far behind the 1.4 million nursing home beds in the country. So it also was important in promoting the home and community-based services movement, because at the time, we had a, essentially a one-size-fits-all solution. If you were old and frail and you could not live independently, and if you were poor, and for that matter, even if you weren't poor, there was really only one solution, and that was a nursing home. And it was, in hindsight, a completely inappropriate solution for a large number of people who were served in nursing homes three decades ago. It's hard to remember, you know, if you could walk in today to a nursing home with the population it had in 1985, a third of those people today would be living independently in their own homes with some supportive services. Another third, roughly, would be served in assisted living or adult daycare or some other more supportive program. And maybe a third would still be living in nursing homes. It's one of the reasons that even though there's been a huge increase in the population of people 65 and over, nursing home beds have actually been decreasing, uh, declining. One of the great successes in, in our field, frankly, has been reducing the number of nursing home beds at the same time that we're offering all of these home and community-based services. And assisted living was a very important beachhead for people who wanted to prove that nursing homes were not the only way of serving frail elders. So that's always stayed in my mind. It is a, an example where you had two visionary people, Karen Brown Wilson. She wasn't alone. There were other Clausens who were big promoters of assisted living. And then Dick Ladd. I'm told the only piece of art that Dick had in his office was a chart showing the increase in Medicaid spending from year to year. So Dick was really fixated on controlling costs. But thank goodness, 
the way he tried to do it was by introducing an alternative to the more expensive option, namely nursing home care, and doing something radical, which is getting assisted living launched and getting assisted living providers to enroll in the Medicaid program by offering a rate that you just couldn't say no to. And in a relatively short period, 100 nursing homes went out of business in the state of Oregon. And as I mentioned earlier, this is something that was state policy. Their view, and this this was radical back then, is nobody should be in a nursing home who could be served anywhere else. That was not the mainstream view. And it really changed my entire paradigm on how to serve frail elders. I, too, had this kind of tunnel vision that it had to be a nursing home. We should make nursing homes better, of course, but that was probably the only safe place. And as a result of the of what was going on in Oregon, I visited one of the first two assisted living facilities in, in the United States, run by the Clausens in Virginia. And I, I entered one person and I left three hours later. It was one of those times, you know, people talk about a paradigm shift. During those three hours, my entire view of how frail elders could and should be served was transformed. I did not know that history on assisted living. So that was really fascinating for me. And actually, you you answered a lot of the other questions I sort of had in store for you. But based on you know this, this historical perspective and, and this amazing body of work that you had thus far, what do you think the future holds then for home and community-based services and, and long-term services and support? What other innovations might, mm. might be out there? Mm-hmm. Well, Joanna, I, I want to add one other thing that I should have mentioned before, which is there was another researcher who was also extremely influential. Victor Rainier is um, an architect and a professor at University of Southern California, and he also happens to be a gerontologist. He's one of the, at one point, he was the only person in America who was a fellow both in the American Institute of, of Architecture and uh, at GSA, I think it was, it is in fact. So he was, he's a fascinating guy in that he looks at buildings, but he also understands what's going on inside of them. I had the, the privilege of accompanying him to uh, Finland a couple of times because he did a Fulbright when he was young in Northern Europe, documenting ways of providing housing and health services to older adults. And he came back and and he's gone back every year since to refresh his research. Victor documented ways of serving older people in Northern Europe that were tremendously different than in the United States, including especially assisted living and housing with supportive services. And it was actually seeing one of, uh, it was seeing a video of a presentation that Victor made that was my introduction to assisted living. And Victor was probably one, maybe the most influential person in getting policymakers and providers to think more expansively about the kinds of environments that um, older adults could live in. So it's worth thinking about 
the contributions Victor and Karen made because their research, which I'm sure to them seemed somewhat narrow and particular to their own place and time, had enormous influence over the decades. So getting to the question you actually asked me, Joanna, which is the future, the future is serving more people who are old, uh, frail, and need support to remain in the community independent, to provide more of that in the community. And to think in this country the way people in Northern Europe think about long-term services and supports, which is to think of it first and foremost as a housing problem. How do we build housing that is so accessible that even people who are frail and have some cognitive loss can remain in their own homes and receive the services that they need there? And it's not unusual to find in Northern Europe a senior housing building that will provide housing for people who are living independently. And essentially, if you are physic, if you are cognitively intact, you will be served there no matter what your needs are for your entire life. For some people who have cognitive decline and particularly dementia, there may come a time when they can't live independently. And Often in some of these buildings, one floor will be dedicated to assisted living for people who have moved from the independent living. And the assisted living model in Northern Europe is what we now call in the United States uh, a small house model, where you have people living in their own rooms, um, having shared dining and maybe a shared living room, activity rooms living in small groups, eight, ten, a dozen, with the appropriate caregivers. And I love seeing this happening right within the independent housing buildings because that meant that these people weren't necessarily losing the contacts they had with their friends or with caregivers. They weren't stigmatized by sending them to some segregated facility that had only people with cognitive decline, et cetera. Rather, they were in a place that was still lively, where many of their contacts were intact, and where the larger statement was, we don't stigmatize or ostracize people because of their physical or cognitive condition. We accommodate them, and and we accommodate them by building housing that allows them to remain as independent as possible. There are some nursing homes in Northern Europe, but the utilization rates are much lower than they are in the United States because of all of the other home community-based services. And I will tell you, Joanna, and this is a little provocative, I I unfortunately, we know how to make nursing homes better in this country. If, if, If we were doing the right thing, we would frankly demolish the vast majority of nursing homes that exist because... They date to the 70s and 80s or even earlier when nursing homes were built on a hospital template. There were many hospitals, extremely institutionalized, the kind of place that we now know people don't want to spend three or four days, let alone the rest of their lives. But 
because nursing home reimbursement is so poor, it is virtually impossible to build a new nursing home in this country or to significantly renovate a nursing home in this country because you can't get financing for it unless you happen to be a nonprofit with access to philanthropy. Hebrew Senior Life was such a nonprofit, we were able to build a new uh, long-term care facility with small, with uh, built on the small house model where people had their own private rooms and private bathrooms and beautifully appointed uh, living spaces. But th- that was uh, something that very few other providers can do because they don't have access to, to the kinds of philanthropy that nonprofits do. So As a result, we have a nursing home industry that is frankly getting worse and worse by the day. We're not upgrading or replacing these facilities, even though nursing homes were the absolute epicenter of the COVID pandemic. And if you look at who was most likely to die, it was a frail old person in a nursing home, a hundred times more likely to die than a person having those conditions living in the community. And even knowing that, there has been virtually no effort to improve reimbursement to nursing homes or financing options. So my sad conclusion is the United States is not going to improve the state of nursing homes. What we have to do is make sure that anybody who can be served anywhere else is served in the community. And if not for the home and community-based services movement having arrested the increase of nursing home beds, instead of serving about 1.2 or 3 million people in nursing homes in this country, we would be serving more like 2 or 3 or 4 million people in nursing homes. And imagine what the pandemic would have done to an even larger nursing home population. So I would like to see nursing homes get better. I'm not very optimistic on that point. And so I think the most important thing we can do is make sure that we are building alternative environments that keep the nursing home population at the absolute minimum. Right. Thank you, Len. I'm going to take it from here. I have to say, I kept thinking about the parallels between the disability rights movement and this shift from nursing homes to the community and how we really need to start drawing on previous experiences by parallel populations. But yeah, so we heard a lot about transformation. You talked about the assisted living movement and what that meant for older adults. But now I want to talk about you and why aging? How did you get into the field? Well, I'll tell you that in a moment, Danny. I want to go back to your comment because you're one of the, you know, one of the people who I look to for a better future because you do have a a great familiarity both with the disabilities field and also the aging field. And there's so much that aging advocates and providers can learn from people with disabilities and the way that they have insisted on having input and, frankly, on a personal level, control over the kinds of 
services that they receive. This unfortunately is not the case for the frail older adult population. And I hope that people like you and Joanna will help the aging services field learn from its its sister field, people with disabilities. You know, my, my own uh, introduction came, I, I just turned age 70, and um, Stuart Altman, who was a friend and a, a well-known policy and research person uh, around Medicare and Medicaid in particular, I, I once heard him say that people our age, for the most part, stumbled into this field. We weren't planning to do it, in part because the field of aging services really isn't that old, and the gerontology that matter is not very old. My first exposure to long-term services and supports or long-term cares known back then was when I was um, a law student in Baltimore, which is where I grew up. And I had, I, I was the youngest child of an extended family of four sisters who lived within a mile of each other. Two of my aunts, had no children of their own. So I was the baby of the entire family. And I was very close to one aunt who was a very... So these were all immigrants from Eastern Europe. This particular aunt was not literate. I used to come to um, her house to open her bills, to read them to her. What none of us could ever figure out is how she managed to read the scratch sheet at the Pimlico racetrack. So maybe she just read the stuff that really interested her. In, in any case, we were very close and she had alienated everybody else in the family. When she went into a nursing home and looking back now, she was clearly capable of living independently. She lived, she needed a little help in her house. She had no business being in a nursing home, but she, she went into a nursing home because that's what you did back then. And I used to visit her and I was the only member of the family who did because one sister died, two had relocated to Florida, and I would visit once or twice a week when I was in law school. And I used to hear family members complaining about the care that their loved ones received. They would often fault the direct care giving staff. And frankly, so this was a nonprofit nursing home. It was a Jewish nursing home in Baltimore, Levendale, it was called back then. And it was a typical institutional environment. It was not as clean as it should have been. The food wasn't as good as it should have been. But I found myself on the other side of the conversation remarking on how extraordinary the frontline caregivers were. I I was struck by the fact that they were largely women of color. They clearly were not earning very much money, and they were being asked to do incredibly demanding jobs. And I marveled at how well they did. And my interest in the field always was about two, the, the two components, the people receiving care and the people giving care. And this became even more clear to me when I, later in life, was running Hebrew Senior Life in, in Boston and came to think of my number one responsibility being the uh, older people that we were serving in a variety of settings, 
and I, I'll, I'll, I'll take a little detour here and mention that one of my main efforts at, at HSL was to move it away from an organization that was almost completely identified around the long-term care component, what we would call nursing home beds, to one that was really focused at least as much on housing and other alternatives to nursing home care, like adult daycare and assisted living and in-home care. So while I was very concerned about the older adults we were serving, uh, a very close second was the the direct care workforce because their jobs were incredibly demanding. And even though HSL offered benefits that were far better than average and salaries that were better than average, frankly, they, the, the salaries were not what they should have been. And this was largely because Medicaid reimbursement, which is what drives everything that happens in nursing homes was just not adequate. About 70% of the cost in running a nursing home is in personnel, it's in labor. And most of that is direct care givers. And they are simply not paid enough for the work that they do. And so I was attracted to the field really as a matter of social justice. It was, in a way, a kind of, it was civil rights for the older people who I think had been victimized in a, an approach that was way too weighted toward the institutional side and the social justice that, that was a function of treating a workforce that was largely disempowered in, in a better way. One of the things that I noticed in Finland is that the workforce that you often find in senior housing and long-term care facilities, at least when I was visiting, this was 15 years ago or so, it may have changed since, it, you would find people who were moving up the ranks in fields like physical therapy and, and were getting their training by doing work in these facilities they were not people who had jobs that were essentially dead-end jobs where there was no opportunity for career advancement. And these workers tended to be white, like the people they were serving. They were not a population that were also suffering from the effects of systemic racism that made it easier for people the entitled population who were being cared for to think of them as other and excuse the inadequate wages and working conditions that were simply unacceptable. So I was drawn to the field because of the huge discrepancy between what we claimed we wanted and what we were actually willing to pay for. And I'll give you one for me, stark example of that. When I was the CEO at Leading Age, I attended a, a meeting of the U.S. Uh, Senate Select Committee on Aging. And the uh, administrator of what was then called the Healthcare Financing Administration, or CMS, uh, was there to present a report on staffing levels in nursing homes. Uh, the upshot of which was that while there was no perfect co correlation between staffing levels and outcomes or quality, 
there was a certain level below which it was unlikely, certain staffing level below which a facility could deliver care of an acceptable quality. That level was higher than the requirements of OBRA, the federal requirements for staffing. There were a number of senators on that committee. Not one of them suggested increasing the federal requirements in line with the findings because they all knew that would mean appropriating more money for Medicaid because Medicaid would have then been required to meet those higher staffing requirements. So all of these senators were happy to hold forth about how bad the care was in certain nursing homes, but they weren't willing to spend the money or increase the regulatory requirements in order to change the field. Yeah. uh, So many of the points that you mentioned that drew you to the field, we are still grappling with today and have been unmasked for the general public amidst the pandemic. I know that us in the aging field, we've been trying to raise awareness and just explore what is going on and how to improve aging in general. So what would you say to the emerging scholars, uh, the mentees, the people who are, are taking up social justice and aging? What would you say to us? Well, I would say that social justice is the right lens to be using because it is about social justice and it is equally about social justice for the people receiving care and the people delivering care. I would also say that going back to a point that Joanna raised earlier, the the one thing that we can say has been a success over the decades in this country has been the move from a system that was almost exclusively focused on nursing home care as the answer to any problem to one where now in most states, more funding is going to support home and community-based services than nursing home level care. It is an unfortunate truth that we have become inured to a nursing home industry that is chronically underfunded and understaffed. And I don't, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I don't see how you change that because of the cost associated with it. I hope I'm wrong, but I am certainly not optimistic. Where I think we have an opportunity to be even more successful in the future is by creating more support for home and community-based services to keep people out of nursing homes, to transfer people from nursing homes back into the community with supportive services, and to develop models of care. And they exist already, but they need to be replicated and expanded where people who are living in the community are receiving a combination of medical services and physical services, not medical, but uh, assistance with activities of daily living that allow them to remain independent. Because this can be done in a way that is cost-effective and promotes a higher quality of life. One thing that I that, that is another interesting 
fact about Northern Europe is what Victor Rainier, who I mentioned earlier, calls the peripatetic home health agency or home care agency. It is much easier in Northern Europe to access home health care in smaller increments of time that make it affordable to provide that kind of care. In the U.S., it's typical if you need to bring an aid into the home that the agency will require a two-hour minimum. That's very expensive if you need it every day of the week. If you could buy a 15-minute or a 30-minute increment of time, which is often all that's needed to help somebody get out of bed, to get dressed, et cetera, it becomes much more affordable to keep people in their own homes. We need that kind of peripatetic care for older people who are frail and for younger people and older people with disabilities. And I hope that people like you will be pointing us toward a future where we begin to take those things for granted. Great. Well, thank you, Len. I think that's all we have for you today. Thank you. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit gerum.org.